This week, I'm going to be speaking to James Howard Kunstler. He's the author of The Long Emergency and Too Much Magic, which are the two non-fiction books of his which we'll be focusing on. Uh, so, James Howard Kunstler, thanks very much for coming on to uh, Hermetics. A pleasure, James. As it is, we're going to begin with the Hermetics question, uh, the unique, but somewhat clumsy question, unique to this podcast. I'll, go I'll gird my loins. <laughs> So you are you can place three figures or thinkers, living or dead, within a room and listen in. Who do you pick? They don't necessarily have to be famous or real. It can be three of anything, really. Uh, and there, there's a conversation between the three and you get to listen in. Who do you pick? I would pick Bonaparte, Richard Feynman, the American physicist, and Camille Paglia, the American polemicist. Okay, that's very strange. I'm, I'm currently reading, actually, James Gleick's Genius on Richard Feynman. So that's a strange question. It's synchronicity, that. James. Yeah, synchronicity. Was it, did, Feynman ever, did Feynman largely comment on it? I'm not, I'm not too far in. I've read, I've read Feynman's, bio, Feynman's biography. That was extremely funny. Um, yeah, I don't know if what he had to say about the, that bio. Okay. If any, if he, I'm not even sure that he was still alive when it was written. No. Okay, so Bonaparte... Feynman and Camille Paglier. Is there a connection there for you? Uh, well, yeah, in a way. Um, I'll, I'll try to explain it. Um, uh, they, they were all characters who very much went their own way. They were all people of uh, high intelligence. They were all people who defied orthodox thought for the most part. And... Uh, sort of carved their way through a lot of the bullshit of their own eras. Uh, and they were all very accomplished in their fields. Bonaparte especially speaks to uh, an idea uh, that I, I, ha I have about charisma, which is that uh, basically there's a kind of uh, declension of charisma. And it begins that with the people who are truly charismatic at the top, uh, being characterized by knowing what they are doing. In other words, the most charismatic people are people who know what they're doing. Then just below them are the people who seem to know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And below them are the people who pretend to know what they're doing. And below them are everybody else, the people who don't know what the fuck they're doing. And how much, what would you say the percentage mixture of the West now is in terms of charisma? <laughs> <laughs> this charisma well, hierarchy. I like this theory. Yeah, I, uh, I don't think that you can state uh, categorically what you're asking, except to say one of the most remarkable things that we're seeing in the United States and to some degree in Europe, uh, well, t two things. One is the, the collapse of the thinking class into uh, a kind of uh, uh, idiocy and absurdity. Uh, and the other one is the... Uh, notable and bizarre, mysterious and strange lack of any kind of good leadership on the scene just about anywhere these days. But mostly uh, I'm speaking of the West because uh, I, I, I don't think it's ne necessarily true of uh, uh, China uh, or uh, Russia. But China specifically, they're, they're, their form of charisma, charisma seems to differ. You know, well, it's a West. little hard. I mean, it's a cross-cultural thing. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't really know how Xi 
is measured by his own countrymen. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I wouldn't venture to even try to suss it out. Uh, Putin presents a different picture. Uh, you know, he's coming out of a culture that was deeply damaged for three quarters of a century. Mm -hmm. And the least that you could say about him is that uh, he seems to have made a game effort to repair it and restore something like normality to his country. Um, beyond that, I might not venture for the moment, but uh, but under the circumstances where, you know, we're really seeing the unraveling of industrial, technical industrial civilization in a kind of a slow motion train wreck, uh, that's quite an accomplishment. <laughs> It's interesting that you say about a decline in charisma, because that implies there that are you no, no, not a de decline uh, in charisma. I mean, there's uh, a there's a decline of apparent, apparently capable, sensible, confident people who know what they're doing. Uh, it may be that the West, being in such a generalized crisis of confidence, has seen that that insecurity spread through its thinking classes and its leadership so so pervasively that uh, it's reached an alarming stage. And, you know, I do think that these things happen periodically in history. You can see something very similar uh, in the French Revolution, and, and especially the conditions that made it possible for Bonaparte to take over. You know, at the end of the, uh, as the French Revolution was fizzling out in the 1790s, uh, you know, the many of the participants had killed each other off for for one thing, but uh, the leadership was completely demoralized. And here comes on onto the scene this 26 year old cavalry officer who uh, performs one one act of uh, questionable uh, heroicism heroics uh, on the streets of Paris by you know threatening to fire grape shot at the mob. And everybody, he gets everybody's attention and everybody turns around and says, oh, my gosh, this is the this is the last competent person in in, in France. And, uh, you know, maybe we maybe he ought to lead the country. And then by some amazing uh, uh, course of events, he ends up being uh, indeed the leader of the country before he's 30 years old. So it's a very strange story, but what's especially strange are the conditions that led to the rise of Bonaparte. And of course, when he did finally get uh, power, uh, you know, it happened that he was uh, a, uh, an extremely competent administrator. Now, he had a very serious weak spot, um, which was his proclivity for making war and thinking that war was glorious and heroic and wonderful. Uh, and that was his undoing. But before he really went down that path uh, and got lost in it, uh, he was a pretty competent guy. And many of the many of the reforms that he introduced are still present in uh, French government and culture today, especially at the the basic body of its law. So many might say with that comment that is this almost yearning for some form of competent leadership? Is this a a reactionary standpoint in the present or is it just an acceptance that these things kind of this 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 lack of competence now is just part of a larger cycle that's ongoing well it's both really i think it is part of a larger cycle but i do think that there i think that there there is a yearning for uh competent competency that can address the very pressing problems that the human race faces uh 
And what I what I said some years ago when I was still on the lecture circuit, and I've kind of come off the lecture circuit because the climate on the American university campuses now is so extreme and, and crazy that it's almost impossible to uh, to go to a university without generating some kind of a crisis, uh, especially if you're especially if you're retailing uncomfortable ideas, since the the primary aim in American education now is to make the students comfortable. Mm. But um, what I used to tell them was, you know, when I gave my my lecture was, we seem to be moving into a time when Americans will beg somebody to, tr to push them around and tell them what to do mm -hmm. and uh, give them some purposeful direction because we uh, have become such a feckless uh, and purposeless nation, uh, uh, unable to address any of the important concerns that, that we find ourselves in, that uh, you know, it, it could be viewed as a kind of a fatal condition for, for the republic. So the, the lecture circuit you were in, you comment on this in, um, I believe it's Too Much Magic, where you go to the Google talk and um, you go to Google and give a lecture there and uh, they almost just, just cannot, cannot accept this, you know, they're the basically kind of mumbled that they have technology. Would you put these lecture series along with contemporary Western education or the contemporary Western education system as a whole within what you just called the uh, the idiocy of the of the thinking class? Is that... Is that what you meant by that? Well, yeah, pretty much. Although the thinking class, you know, in America, I would include the the uh, the press, the or otherwise known as the news media, including the the TV news and uh, politics and uh, business and science to some degree, and uh, of course uh, academia. And they're just, uh, you know, they're. As we say, as we boomers say, we, we veterans of the 1960s, you know, they they all just seem to be losing their shit. <laughs> in, in what way? In, what, what in, in the losing? sense that they're, you know, they have become preoccupied with uh, ideas that don't necessarily comport with reality. And, uh, you know, for example, the, uh, the, the, the preoccupation with the tiny demographics of uh, sexually confused people you know these these have now been become for the left in america the most important interest group to be served uh, by politics uh, it's just preposterous and of course also a, a lot of the ideology around it does conflict with what we know scientifically about uh what constitutes sexual difference so that's pretty nuts um, the the whole American Russiagate struggle or crisis or uh, problem is a whole body of bad faith and dishonesty that has never been seen to such a degree in the United States. It it goes way beyond any other scandal we've ever had uh, or any other ideological conflict, including the McCarthy, the Senator McCarthy struggles of the 1950s and Watergate and the Teapot Dome scandal. And, you know, uh, it, it's really only comparable to the events that preceded the Civil War. So it's a very disturbing thing. And, uh, you know, what you find basically is a, a very large cohort of people in the United States who ought to know better 
who are acting as if they don't know better. So the the whole picture is pretty depressing. Uh, I'm not sure how it's gonna uh, how it's gonna roll out, but I I do think we are at the beginning of a ferocious reaction to that, and it's going to take the form of a lot of former officials going to jail. Mm-hmm. So uh, this this completely touches in on the on the overarching thing here that we're that we're kind of uh, tiptoeing around the edges of, but without stating it in its kind of horrible, bastardized contemporary chimeric name which is uh, progress so this is all under the guise of progress perhaps what what's happened to that word where 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 did this form of progress come from where you know this 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 exponential idea that things can always be better and under progress well for one thing it's saddled with a, with a number of assumptions that are probably are not true you know one is that uh progress is limitless in the same way that the resources of the earth uh, are supposed to be limitless in fact when in fact they are not so that's that's one big problem i correspond with uh, uh, a mexican billionaire named hugo salinas price uh, and he's he's somewhat of a of a an intellectual and especially a financial intellectual but one of his theories about this I find rather interesting. He, he sees a uh, parallel between the lunacy on the left in, in the USA and uh, the uh, religious practice that goes by the name of Gnosticism. That's G-N-O-S-T-I-C, Gnostic. Mm-hmm. And uh, his main point is that Gnosticism is concerned with the transformation of human nature. In other words, the wish to improve the world by transforming human nature and make, making people into something that they are, are not quite uh, being right now. In other words, perfecting. And, uh, you know, I think that, that really does characterize a lot of the belief systems and behavior on the left. Uh, it's this wish to radically transform human nature as a way of making the world a better place. My own position is that we're unlikely to change human nature. And many of the artificial cybernetic methods that we're looking at for doing that, you know, whether they're uh, uh, artificial intelligence or, or some sort of uh, mental or physical prosthetic that you bring into the human picture, you know, I, I think a lot of those are fraught with uh, peril and uh, uh, we're unlikely to be perfecting human nature, in which case it's more a matter of uh, improving our methods for just dealing with the ordinary vicissitudes of life on this planet. Uh, so that's that's what I would that would be my program uh, if I were a politician. But um, I, I think the explanation from Mr. Salinas Price is a good one. Definitely. That's something I've been thinking for a long time is that le- the leftists seem to have this um, unseen wholeness and everything else that doesn't fit into it is, is, isn't, isn't of its own opinion. It's just incorrect and, and a fault in reality that should never have really uh, been in it. They just can't really accept it. But if, if that's what, what you see the, the left as, you know, this, they're the focusing you know on extremely impractical tiny things which which much to the frustration of of kind of well the majority 
what do you see is going on in the right in, in you know is anything interesting going on in the right or is it is it purely what we're seeing well i think there is something interesting going on in the right because of what's going on in the left you know what is going on in the left is a new form of despotic tyrannical behavior this wish to punish people uh, i believe if you take a good hard look at the behavior on the American left, and I can't speak for, for the UK or the rest of Europe, but if you take a good hard look at the American left, what you see at bottom, really, beyond all the ideology, is just a, a desperate wish to coerce other people, to push them around and tell them what to do and how to think. And that, I find that to be tremendously disturbing and something that the left itself doesn't seem to notice uh, to be a problem. You know, they, they're taking on some of the worst qualities that we find in the tyrannical regimes of the 20th century or, or even in uh, uh, works of literature like George Orwell. So that, that's terribly problematical. But the, one of the reactions to it is that it has uh, bestirred uh, this reaction among the right, which is sort of the rise of, what, of what's called the liberty left. Uh, excuse me, the, li the liberty, liberty right. The um, and, and that's not exactly the same as the libertarian right, although they are related. But it's basically the idea that you know we are now in a situation where our civil liberties are so threatened by cranks, puritans, witch hunters, uh, inquisitors, and other dangerous characters who we've seen before in history that it requires a new commitment to uh, civil and religious liberty. It requires uh, a new commitment to liberty from, from a loyal opposition. And I think that that's the best of what you're seeing on the right. Uh, there is also in the U.S., which, in which the right is represented by generally the Republican Party, you're just seeing a kind of a, a whole lot of fence-sitters and and characters who are uh, uh, laying back and not really participating and not really committing themselves to anything. Uh, they were probably largely a faction of not very principled people in the first place. And um, I don't know how long they're going to remain as an important part of the party. Uh, I think the surprising element of that reaction, though, to the despotic left is that you haven't seen anything equal in virulence on the right yet. You know, you haven't seen no. the, the rising up of a really ferocious uh, right wing party that that, you know, really wants to go to war with these assholes on campus and and elsewhere in politics and um uh you know i think if that if and when that happens it's going to be pretty ugly and uh it hasn't happened yet yeah that's one of the things um douglas murray said in his book the strange death of europe which was uh you know if the, if the left wants to see a real right right wing you know all they need to do is keep doing what they're doing there's kind of large questions here regarding both progress and the politics because there's a there's a notion that you bring up, which the the, le the left has kind of been bringing, which is that that a hundred percent happy endings are possible. I mean, that's kind of a phrase for utopianism, really. Um, but it, absolutely it, right. It it covers up, you know, to have that even that possibility, you have to start kind of putting you know cement over 
even concepts of death and then, and then impermanence and suffering, which which as as we know, and I'm sure you'd be sympathetic to agree, are you know they're they're just completely parts of life, not only parts of life, but parts of life that you need to kind of to kind of get the um, the contrast. Um, yeah, life is tragic. You know th- that, and it's interesting that that is kind of a fundamental rule of the human condition that has been taken out of the college curriculum. You know, it's no longer taught on the campuses that, you know, life is tragic. And by that, it doesn't mean that everything is an unhappy ending. But what it does mean is that, uh, you know, uh, shit happens and there are consequences to the actions that you take. And and life is difficult for everybody, including the so-called privileged. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Are we privileged? Are you do you consider yourself privileged? Well, uh, you know, that that concept almost didn't really exist until a few years ago. Uh, and oddly, it seems to come in the USA from a, a, a much older concept that uh, you would have thought it, ca- it would have come out of there sooner. But, you know, after the Second World War, the people who were not doing well in the society, especially uh, the black and brown people, were labeled the underprivileged. And that label, you know, carried on for 30, 40 years. And it wasn't until, you know, decades later that all of a sudden somebody said, hey, if those people are underprivileged, the problem must be that the other people are too privileged. And that's where that came from. And, uh, you know, it, one of the things it shows you is the danger of using euphemisms to describe elements of the human condition. And you end up in just a kind of a hall of mirrors of, of ideology. So what would you say uh, was the problem there with regard to, to um, getting people out of their so-called underprivileged state? Well, there, there are problems that we really don't want to talk about in the United States, despite all the fake calls for having a, quote, honest conversation about race. <laughs> But we don't want to talk about, uh, you know, the failures of education. And, you know, I think what's what's basically gone on is this, is that uh, now this is maybe uh, uh, an out of the box theory. But my theory from having lived through the civil rights campaign of the 1960s is that, uh, you know, that was a campaign that was taken on in good faith because the United States had won this war over tyranny and injustice and despotism and we had styled ourselves as the beacon of the free world and yet we were still practicing uh, segregation and jim crow politics and and uh, racial uh, uh, abuse and so we had a very sturdy campaign that went on for 20 years to uh, correct those problems and they they climaxed in legislation in 1964 and 65. Uh, one of them was the Public Accommodations Act, which ended the, the physical segregation of people in public uh, uh, places, lunch counters, uh, bathrooms, you know, all that, uh, any public facility. And then the Voting Act of 1965, which made it uh, m- much easier for people to vote in places where they had been deprived of the vote. And Along with that came a great promise of transformation, you know, that uh, mm-hmm. that these civil rights victories would transform the life of black people who had been 
doing pretty poorly. Part of the reasons, uh, there were many reasons for that. You know, one one of the mo- the outstanding ones of the period was that when the uh, uh, when the mechanical cotton picker was introduced to the South, and it ended the practice of sharecropping, which is a kind of uh, you know serfdom or peasantry that the blacks were con- consigned to after the Civil War. Many of them came up to the industrial cities in the north to find work. And there was a tremendous promise of being able to rise in society, make a good living, uh, make money, educate your kids, uh, get a good job at General Motors, you know, and make uh, a princely salary by the standards of the sharecroppers. Mm-hmm. So this large population of blacks moved from the south into, you know, up into Detroit and Chicago and Baltimore and you know, all the small industrial cities of the Midwest. And then, you know, 15, 20 years later, all their work was offshored to other countries and the factories closed down. And these people who had been uh, uh, deracinated once uh, from from their their lifeways and homes in the South found themselves uh, again in, in a crisis. And um, so that was a that was a a serious problem. But the civil rights era came along with all these promises that uh, that their lot would improve. And it didn't improve as much as people wanted it to. And so what you're seeing 20, 30, 40 years later is the accumulation of a lot of shame and disappointment that the civil rights campaign didn't work out. And so there must be some other explanation for why it didn't work out and that that has turned out to be this thing called white privilege and structural racism but you know what you're also seeing was this that as early as 1960 the the early 1960s you began to see an oppositional black culture forming and it, it was really uh kind of crystallized by the character known as malcolm x in new york but then the various student movements took it up and Malcolm X was assassinated in the meantime. And uh, the movement turned into a black power movement, so-called. And that became a kind of permanent oppositional culture for black America, which it has unfortunately been stuck in for about 50 years now. And among the uh, uh, shortcomings of that culture, are the lack of interest in a common culture of of the rest of the United States and a lack of interest in some of the things that would make it possible for black people to do better in this culture, Um, namely things like speaking English correctly, uh, learning, you know, learning how to learn in school and not writing that off as acting white. And, uh, you know, so you you end up with a lot of features of an oppositional culture that have been deeply unhelpful to uh, black people in America. And they don't seem to recognize that it's not working for them. That And right now they're getting a lot of assistance. They've always had a lot of assistance from the white liberal left. But they're they're basically being encouraged to just keep doubling down on what they're doing. And it's not working. And and the liberal left, I, I believe, is consumed with this shame and disappointment that they can't articulate. 
and uh, and that they refuse to confront. And so, as is the case with many kind of uh, psychopathologies, it, it ends up being expressed in a pretty destructive way and a pretty unhelpful way. So that's the long story of of what I see about uh, uh, you know the the problems of the very poor in America, but in particular black America. Now, white America, especially white former working class America, has begun to join the, the oppositional culture. Well, they're, they're developing a different kind of their own oppositional culture, which is, uh, you know, based on basically dropping out, uh, being idle, uh, taking a lot of drugs, being violent, and uh, the failure to recognize a lot of boundaries like sexual boundaries and um you know so it's become equally problematical so mm -hmm. so there you have it you know it, it's kind of a it as a whole if if you can even call it a whole because it's mostly an admixture of various parts american culture is really in free fall uh, and it's deeply disturbing uh we don't want to talk about any of the real reasons for it like the kind of things that I discussed five minutes ago would be absolutely verboten in the USA. <laughs> if you said anything like that on Twitter, you'd be considered, you know, some kind of a terrible uh, uh, bigot and racist. But, uh, you know, it's simply a, a recognition of conditions that we're seeing. Now, I, I do want to say one thing that about what you asked me earlier, mm -hmm. uh, and it has to do with, you know, why why the ideology of the left has become so un, uh, untethered to reality. And it was really the basis of my 2012 book, which was called Too Much Magic. And I think that we have entered a culture of wishful thinking. And, uh, you know, it's just it's a phase that we're going through in history. It's an unfortunate uh, it's an unfortunate set of, of beliefs and ideas and behaviors. But nonetheless, we're doing it. A lot of it has to do with the fact that we are uh, probably secretly very worried about where history is taking us uh, right now. And uh, it's not very well understood by the public at large, especially the economic and financial issues. And so a great body of wishful thinking has grown up around ideas that will allow us to think that we can keep living the way that we're living now indefinitely. And that's really the basis of it. We, you know, we probably can't keep living this way. Uh, a lot of it has to do with our energy supply, which about which there is a, a good deal of dishonesty and, and bad faith also. But uh, we're probably going to be faced with some epical changes and uh, we don't want to face them. So we're immersed in these these wishful thinking patterns of behavior. That actually connects to the, the question I want to ask you. Kind of, you made a brief comment about it actually in Too Much Magic, and you note that kind of in what you what you call the long, the long emergency. You know what what I would I would I would say that kind of this is the same as what John Michael Greer calls you know the long the long descent. This this kind of slow. It's not a collapse. It's a very slow process of. It's a long emergency. Like the we're we're within. But we're ignoring. Um, but back to this kind of culture where you say uh, white people are kind of dropping out and doing a lot of doing a lot of drugs. I mean, this is this has become quite a trait, probably from two thousand onwards. You know, postmodernism, irony, hipness, and you state that 
in 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 um, too much magic that this form of culture, this form of kind of idle, fruitless, you know, hipness and irony is going to be so abhorrent within the future. Um, I just wondered if you could comment on, on why you saw it that way. Well, what you're seeing is a culture that is purposeless, but uh, especially in terms of personal, a personal sense of purpose. People don't have that. They Most Americans do not like their jobs or, or actually uh, hate their jobs. Um, most of the places in the United States where people live are terrible environments. I wrote about all that in, in my first nonfiction book, The Geography of Nowhere, about the, the fiasco of American suburbia and how punishing it is to the human spirit to, uh, and, and also punishing economically to uh, be immersed in that entropic uh, pattern of existence. And uh, we are entering a period of history where life is going to be much more difficult and challenging. You know, remember, uh, or, or bear in mind that uh, we're, we're still fortunate enough, in a, I suppose, to have access to tremendous comforts and conveniences right now because the techno-industrial uh, economy is, for the moment, still humming along. Mm -hmm. But my hypothesis is that it is going to uh, collide with certain economic realities that are going to uh, prang it. And that we're going to find ourselves in uh, very different circumstances in, you know, 5, 10, 20 years that will require people, will compel people to be much more serious and much more earnest and much more purposeful. Uh, and if they don't, the, you know, their lives may be at stake. They're going to have to work harder at things that are meaningful. And uh, a lot of these things are going to surprise the public, especially the, the younger generations, for example, uh, I do believe that a, a, many, many members of the younger and youngest generations are going to find themselves working in one way or another in agriculture mm -hmm. in 20, 30, 40 years. The survivors will anyway. And, you know, they find that probably absolutely uh, uh, impossible and, and unbelievable. And, uh, you know, we don't want to have any conversation about that. But the... Uh, uh, the Western world, well, the, the world generally, the people of the world are going to have a much harder time feeding themselves when we don't have a fossil fuel-based uh, uh, agribiz form of food production in the world. Uh, I think it ought to go without saying that we will probably endure famines and, you know, very serious, uh, very serious disruptions yeah. by historic, by historic uh, measure. They'll probably be worse than anything the world has ever seen just because of the sheer numbers of human beings that are now on this planet uh, and many of them aren't going to make it mm -hmm. so you know it, it's going to be a tougher scene and and uh, uh but it will be probably self-correcting in its own punishing way uh just to put it into perspective for for when you mentioned about you know kind of fossil fuel powered agriculture i think my statistics are correct when i say that for you know, meat, mass-produced, meat-based uh, uh, food production is, I think, s almost seventy to one calories, calories in, in for to calories yeah, out. and then and then vegetables yeah. is about thirteen to one. So uh, those are the ratios uh, for anyone who doesn't know. Um, but when you talk about the herd, you know, the kind of the things that are going to 
Prang Progress, of course, which uh, also for anyone who doesn't know, I think the we have to maintain a 3% growth uh, year in, year out for the entire thing not to fail. Um, yeah, especially financially. Yeah. Um, so the thing that, you know, the things that are going to prang, prang are, of course, the, the finite. And, of course, um, I'm going to speak of oil here because that's the peak oil here because that's the clearest one. Um, I think most of the listeners can, can look up the theory of peak oil themselves. But what would you say to the naysayers of, of peak oil that the that, 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 I would I would say that they they're just hoping on a you know Deus Deus Ex, um, but yeah, what would you say to to those? Well, there are a lot of them. Uh, yeah. Uh, in general, I think you can say that an awful lot of serious people no longer believe that there is such a thing as peak oil, um, and a lot of that is a result of the so-called shale oil miracle in the United States. Now, you know, the shale oil miracle is based on a recovery and production process that is uh, hyper complex to even an extreme of hyper complexity. And it is also an endeavor in which just about none of the companies involved are making any money. And it has all been performed through the miracle of zero interest rate or near zero interest rate financing. And uh, the problem now is that the companies have had 10 years to demonstrate that they can produce a lot of oil and not make a profit at it. And the problem with that is that uh, they are unlikely to get the kind of financing that they need to continue their operations at the uh, scale that they are still operating at, which tells me, first of all, the shale oil, um, the whole shale oil endeavor was a kind of a financial stunt and technological stunt. It was very impressive, uh, but I think that it is going to fall apart as quickly as it shot up. You know, remember we went from we went from in, in the United States from producing under. Uh, five million barrels a day and, and importing something like, uh, I don't know, 15 million barrels a day to now producing 12 million barrels a day. And now I think we import something like three or four million barrels a day. So yeah, we're importing less. We are not energy independent. Uh, but the rise of that, that tremendous rise to a new American peak production peak of 12 million plus a day is, uh, happened so quickly that I believe the, that on the downside of it, it's going to happen equally quickly and, and be a really crushing uh, and, and disrupting disappointment for this country and for the world. Can I ask if you have specific dates at all? Well, about all I could really uh, commit myself to is saying that, look, the shale oil miracle shot up from like 2008 to 2019 it's basically been a you know 10 11 year arc to that to that thing i i can see it i can see it falling apart more quickly than it went up which means less than 10 years because once things really start unraveling they tend to go down faster than they went up i mean that's certainly true of financial markets and it's probably going to be true uh, in terms of shale oil production so the the bottom line is that America 
got a reprieve from worrying about their energy supply for 10 years mm -hmm. due to what, what turned out to be an impressive financial and technological stunt. It's important to remember that, well, it's important to remember that this near zero interest rate kind of fin financing was itself uh, a tremendous anomaly in human history. And, uh, you know, we don't know what the outcome of it is going to be, but it what it really represented was a tremendous borrowing from the future. And you can only borrow from the future so much before there's no more future left to borrow from. That's the conundrum that we face. Speaking of the, speaking of the future, you, you have this great quote in um, no, Too Much Magic, where you say, um, kind of, in a future where the long long emergency is kind of well underway and people have at least the surviving probably 10, 20% have accepted it and they're, they're, they're well underway, you know, living the way they now need to live. You say, we will not be consumed by our consumption, nor will our children or grandchildren. Now, outside of the, the contemporary lusts for consumption and for, you know, for objects and detritus and silly little items, is this a kind of fake nostalgia for some kind of Wendell Berry-esque farm living, um, which which Tish to play devil's advocate would go kind of hand in hand with the, the tongue in cheek jokes you've been making about yourself being from the boomer generation, or 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 is or, or is there a very sincere replacement to uh, the the culture of consumption that we've we've you know we're currently within and have been in for the last uh, sixty years. No, it's dead serious. You can't have a culture of consumption if you don't have a culture of production to accompany it. And if we're going to get into trouble with fossil fuels, which we are for sure, mm -hmm. we're simply not going to be able to produce the amount of stuff that we need. And that includes things like home heating and air conditioning and just the conditions that make it possible for to people to be as comfortable as they are in this advanced civilization. But it also extends, of course, to things like food and and uh, tools and uh, you know just about any other produced manufactured good, you know whether it's furniture or or books or artwork or uh, you know anything. Mm -hmm. So I, I what I I think what you know what I think we're really talking about is uh, we're just going to have a whole lot less, and we're going to have to find a way to live with a whole lot less and. Uh, you know, it's, it's liable to be pretty difficult. Uh, you know, the, the real question for me is how does human society reconfigure itself uh, in order to uh, uh, get through or, or, or to live in that under those conditions? Mm -hmm. And my, my best guess, based on the scenarios that I laid out in my four novels uh, that went under the rubric of the world made by hand, uh, and, and they were set in a post-industrial collapse United States. You know, I think we're going to see something that resembles, uh, you know, neo-feudalism or kind of a neo-medieval society, if we're lucky, if we can keep it together. You know, uh, one of the differences and, and uh, the, you know, this is the re one of the reasons this is not really a nostalgic thing. Uh, we have to consider the fact that the kind of resources that were available in the world in, you know, 1300 or 1500 uh, were, were considerable compared to what's left today, whether it's, uh, you know, timber or ores 
or uh, or coal or you know any useful uh, resource that the world offers to us. And uh, there there are things that are going on now that are quite scary in terms of the ecological damage that we've already incurred. You know things like the disappearance of insect populations and and uh, wildlife and and birds and uh, you know these are things that uh, are pretty ominous and we don't know where that's taking us although when i wrote my novels i came to the conclusion that um nature is resilient nature does mm -hmm. bounce back and mm -hmm. you know when the human race uh is forced to give up many of its depredations on this planet that a lot of the other creatures will bounce back but it's still you know, uh, you know what i said about the resources and the ores and the timber and all that stuff that's going to still be very problematical you know, the conclusion you could come to is that uh one way one one way that can only work will be if there is a, a much smaller human population worldwide mm -hmm. and, and that this culture of consumption you say it kind of climaxed in the 1970s so from 1970s to let's say going off the estimates you mentioned previously to say 1970 to say 2040 what do you think people are going to look back and see that that era as this era as well hard to say i, I you know i think the Capacity for nostalgia is enormous, and there will be an awful lot of things that people miss. You know, I, I'm quite sure that uh, people in Dixieland will miss air conditioning. <laughs> you know, it, uh, Dixieland, that is the southern, southeastern states in, U, in the USA, uh, was kind of an agricultural backwater up until about 1960. And it's no coincidence that the rise of southern cities and the rise of southern business culture and its its uh, commitment to the global econ economy was uh, co co that it happened largely because uh, of air conditioning, and it made it possible for people to live in these places, which were really quite uncomfortable places to live otherwise. So uh, you know they'll probably be return to becoming uh, agricultural backwaters in the future, and people will you know sit back and and think uh, nostalgically about the days when they could just uh, sit in the air conditioning and watch television and be comfortable. That one of the one of the things I noticed about the South, because I traveled around the South a lot when I was doing college lectures for 20 years. And um, it it interested it, it interested me that they were so destructive to their own towns. Uh, and it was in part because they had very little nostalgic for their own past. You know, they were they were not nostalgic for um, uh, working, doing hard uh, agricultural labor in the heat. They were not nostalgic about getting hookworm from walking around without shoes. They were not nostalgic about eating shitty food, um, although they still eat a lot of shitty food. Themselves. <laughs> but, um, you know, really shitty food like pig snaps and, you know, hoofs and whatever other crap they were eating. And um they, you know, in short, they didn't have any nostalgia for their past in that sense. They had nostalgia for the present. They were, they were deeply committed to the culture of, you know, air conditioning, night baseball, uh, cheap snacks, uh, motoring, uh, all the things that make up the, the matrix of, of contemporary American life. 
you know, they they were deeply committed to that and they were not committed to their own history. But they're going to find themselves back in that uncomfortable history. And it's going to be interesting to see how they cope with it. Mm. Just saying. <laughs> you, you've commented a couple, a couple of times now on, on kind of, uh, well, quite a few times on kind of the work that we're going to have to kind of go back to. You know, people, there's not going to be uh, filler jobs anymore. The jobs that Dmitry Orlov calls the, the embroidery on the fabric of society, you know, marketing, yeah. uh, things along yeah. those lines where when you pull it, once you've pulled it apart, that there's nothing left. Whereas you pull apart a farm, farming, you know, what, what are they doing? They're farming food yeah. to eat, you know, there's still something there. Is this a, is this a, a boomer yearning for the younger generations to finally all pull up their bootstraps? Well, it's hard to say how much uh, it may be tinged by that. I, I don't really know because, you know, one of one of the things about me is that I don't happen to have children despite being married more than once. I just didn't produce any children. So unlike some of my other contemporaries, I'm not really uh, uh, communing uh, on a daily basis with millennials. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I'm not really tracking their their woes and sorrows and joys and you know what what their experience is like although i pay attention as much as i can to uh, what's around me uh, i'm saying the things i'm saying because i think that they represent uh, the destination of this journey that we're on at least the uh, you know the next stop uh, in the human project and i think the next stop is going to be a time out from techno industrial progress it may be a very long one it could even conceivably be a permanent one we don't know yet, but I think that's what we're heading into. And a lot of the assumptions, getting back to the main core of what we've been talking about, a lot of the assumptions about how we are living now and how we're going to live in the future uh, are based on the idea that uh, techno-industrial civilization just keeps on chugging along. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that. I, you know, I think that it is a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and we're closer to the end than we are to the middle. And uh, when that happens, it's going to incite a a whole new regime of thinking about what human progress really was. And personally, I think that the techno-industrial regime, which I would date back, you know, if I had to date it, I'd just say, well, from about 1800 on, you know, uh, I think that will prove to have been a historical anomaly. And historians further into the future, when sitting around their campfires, uh, will regard it as an, a historical anomaly and not necessarily a permanent installation of the human condition. And this this destination that we're heading towards, would you, do you have any somewhat clear advice for uh, generations who are going to be experiencing it firsthand? Yeah, I would say learn as many practical skills as you can. Uh, there are there's a lot of information out there right now in books and and even while we still have it, uh, the Internet, YouTube, et cetera, plenty of how to do this and how to do that. Uh, there's just tons of it. Uh, I think that young people need to make a very um, uh, thoughtful calculation about where they're going to live, because there are going to be some parts of the now inhabitable world that are going to be different in one way or another, or or even if they're the same, they may not be habitable under newer conditions. Like in the USA, uh, the the southwestern cities of the USA, like Phoenix and Tucson, and and you know even Los Angeles, 
are places that are unlikely to thrive in the future for practical reasons. You know, they um, it's not easy to grow food in Tucson and Phoenix. In fact, it's quite difficult. It's a desert. And uh, their water supply is an artificial water supply. You know, they're, they're dependent on motoring. None of those conditions are going to... Uh, I mean, uh, all of those conditions are going to be challenged. So uh, people who think they're going to be able to live in Phoenix, Arizona, better think again. Uh, as far as Europe goes, uh, well, for, for one thing, we really don't know. It's uh, hard to say what what is going on exactly with the climate and exactly where it's taking us. You know, I I wrote in those two books that, that you cited of mine, that um, you know, we we might be concerned about what's happening with the Gulf Stream, uh, and uh, that might be a harbinger of colder times for Northern Europe, probably making it uh, um, much more difficult for people to live there in in large numbers. So we don't know; uh, those things are up in the air. But millennials would be uh, well advised to think carefully and long. Uh, about where they're going to live. So where they're going to live, what they're going to do, what kind of ideas they're going to adopt, how they're going to preserve much of the knowledge that we already have that's liable to get lost. You know, uh, another strange feature of the time we live in is, is the assumption by apparently a lot of people that the, the Internet is also a permanent installation in the human condition. And uh, many of those people who believe that don't seem to be paying attention to how fragile the electric grids are in various parts of the world, including the United States. And, you know, if, if you don't have uh, dependable electric power, you're not going to have much of an Internet. So uh, don't necessarily assume that that is now, you know, part of the human condition. I have no uh, confidence at all that we're going to become a world of... Uh, uh, automation and robots and uh, and AI. I don't think we're going to get to that. I think we're going to lose our shit before that happens. And it would probably be be a good thing if we did. In, unless there's anything you uh, you feel that we could have touched on, or anything you don't often get to comment on that you'd like to to uh, speak about. Well, the only thing that I have to say for myself is that uh, you know I've been concerned with issues that are very scary to a lot of people and and uh, in some cases even offensive, and um, uh, they're difficult issues to grapple with. Uh, they're pretty fundamental to what's going on with the human race right now and our ability to carry on this project further into time. Uh, but uh, personally, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a depressed person. I'm a pretty cheerful guy, and uh, I found a way to find meaning and purpose in my own life, even, even under ominous conditions and uh, I urge other people to understand that that uh, the joy of just being here on this planet is going to continue you know uh, life life may be difficult but we're going to find reasons to live and purposes and things to believe in and things to be joyful about are you are you a religious person at all not in the least I was raised in a religion-free household, and uh, I don't have an animus against religion particularly. I, I'm, I'm, well, I don't know. I, you know, there are elements of it that I'm kind of uh, an opponent of. I'm not, I'm not into uh, inquisitions and, you know, witch hunts and, and other 
things like that. But uh, I'm not against them. Uh, but I, I have managed to find my own purpose and meaning in life without becoming immersed in uh, pre-cooked belief systems. I think that's a, a good place to stop. That's all right. Thanks very much for coming on. You're quite welcome, James.